Hello, and welcome to the All Things Narrative podcast, where we explore the relationships between the stories we love and the stories we live. I'm your host, Derek Hatch, and let's get started. What's up, everyone out there? Welcome back to another episode of All Things Narrative. And if you are listening to this on release day, uh, happy Independence Day, 4th of July, uh, to all my fellow Americans out there. And this is a perfect topic for today, for that season. And if you are listening and you are not from America, then I wish you all the best. Hopefully you are enjoying your summer or winter if you are down south in Australia and other places there. So yeah, we are going to dive into this. And of course, I got a very special guest joining me for this one. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for the one and only Tori Hatch. (laughs) <laughs> that's right that's right yep. everyone's cheering because you are here and perfect person in my opinion to talk about with history because ever since i've known you you've you've enjoyed history i do enjoy history yeah you know we both took ap world history in high school yes when i was 15 yeah so it's been a hot minute since then it has, <laughs> i don't it, remember all that yeah well, it's interesting because you do like history and cycles in school. Like you do American history at least three times. Mm-hmm. I remember doing it in fifth grade, eighth grade, and 11th grade. Yeah. Then you do like ancient history a couple times. And yeah. In AP World History, did you have to do a biography about someone? Yes. And you could pick any historical figure, I did right? Lucille Ball. You did Lucille Ball? I even dressed up like her and gave my presentation. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. That's hilarious because my teacher wouldn't let us pick a figure from the West. Oh, really? Yeah, we but could you had not to pick, pick any, someone from the East. So we could not pick, pick anyone from America or um, Europe. So, okay. snarky kid that I was. Oh no, did you pick Jesus? I did pick of Jesus. Of course you picked Jesus. Well, and I, I was told no. Oh I was told I can't do Jesus because that's a Western figure. And I said, no, technically he's from the yeah, Middle he's East. Not. And then they said, okay, fine. You can do Jesus. You're so snarky. You snarky pick, little Christian boy. Yeah. Pick a human in history. You're like, I'm going to pick the person who is 100% human and 100% God. Well, I just focused pick on the that. human side of him for history. Yeah. Yeah. So that's funny. Yeah. It was just an excuse. I picked to, the movie. It was star. just an excuse to read the Bible. Did you and, need and an do excuse? do it for homework. <laughs> well, I was that kid in 11th grade that like read the Bible all the time, like whenever I had a moment. So it worked out. Well, there you go. But today we're not talking about biblical epics of history because we kind of covered that already on our metaphysical journey episode. So what we are going to talk about more with history are historical narratives. Uh, We'll talk about mostly films. There'll probably be a couple books that we reference as well. But yeah, we are continuing our Why We Love Genres series. So kind of like the metaphysical journey This is kind of an odd one because I'm doing more of like a smorgasbord of a few different genres here. And we're actually starting today kind of a larger series on underdogs. 
So our first two episodes of this genre series were about relationships. So Tori, you were here for the romance one. Yes. And that was a focusing about our relationships with the physical and people and all that. And then we did the metaphysical journey, uh, which was about our relationships with, you know, life itself, reality, God, all those different things. And then we focused on journeys, uh, not just with the metaphysical journey, but we did uh, external journeys. So we did action, right, with proverb. We did fantasy and sci-fi, which both utilize hero's journey and different things like that. And now we are starting a series on underdogs. So the next few episodes are going to be genres that really focus on characters that have to... Overcome? Yeah, characters that have the odds stacked against them, okay. you know, which you could argue that's any story, but there's genres that are more specific to that, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of the historical narratives um, that we'll talk about, for example, are these kind of underdog stories. And some of these other genres we'll, we'll discuss to fall into that. So in like our... a lot of like sports movies. Yeah, so... It's interesting you brought up sports because that's like the one super genre that I don't intend to cover this year. Mm -hmm. I might loop it into something else. But yeah, sports is is that's a great example of an underdog genre. This historical narrative, it would technically fall under the macro genre. So you know, there's like 50 of these macro genres, right? So this is uh, kind of along the lines of like the metaphysical journey and the superhero when we get there. So the historical narrative will tend to be paired with another genre of some sort, right? Okay. Depending on kind of the story that's being told. And of course, like we've said before, all stories uh, are either comedy or drama, right? As their type. So. Well, it seems like historical movies are just using history as the setting. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So it's, uh, I mean, like the events in history are going to dictate the genre. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's going to give it the flavor, right? Of mm -hmm. how it's going to be paired. So let me give a little definition uh, that we'll kind of work with here. So history is our attempt to make sense of the past by organizing it into meaningful patterns. Historical narratives give us context for where we've been so we can better understand where we are and where we want to go. Whether based on true events or primarily fictional, the historical settings are fundamental to their storytelling. From war films to biopics to political epics, these stories put us in touch with the past so that we never forget lest we are doomed to repeat it. Okay, there we go. Yeah, gives us a little something to work with, right? Yep. And so we love history. Well, maybe not everybody. I, I remember people in school that weren't into history classes. But history is so fascinating, right? Because it's the story. It's us doing what we do in our lives. We're going through the past, we're coming through it, and we're extracting pieces, these little micro stories, right? And we're threading them together into a narrative that helps us make sense of the past and gives us meaning, right? In how we look at it. It's interesting too, because when we study like 
the ways people document history throughout time. You know, we expect, you know, with kind of like our, our modernist approach, like, okay, like we want objective history, right? We want as if somebody recorded it with a camera right then and there and wrote it down. But it's interesting because that notion of history is only a few hundred years old. I was going to say, it seems more like most of the narrative or most of the historical films we've watched, they're more so like, if you haven't talked to a friend in like 10 years and they're like, hey, what's been going on in your life? And you just kind of mm -hmm. pick like five interesting things that happened. Yeah. That maybe they were all strung together meaningfully or not, but yeah. it doesn't cover like exactly what happened. It's right. just like snapshot here and snapshot there mm -hmm. and kind of get the gist of yeah. things. Yeah, absolutely. They're selected mm -hmm. and organized in a certain way to speak to a present context, right? Yes. So, I mean, again, just to go to the Bible, like if you talk about the four gospels of Jesus. That's exactly what yeah, I was thinking. You know, yep. mm -hmm. each of those gospels are arranged the way they are because there is a specific audience mm -hmm. that the author had in mind. Yep. It's not just the camera that's just telling us exactly what was happening. Historical narratives that we talk about, they kind of function in a similar way. Mm -hmm. They're not as clean and tidy and objective as we'd like. And that's that's the thing that we really want to take away with is that history, there is a subjectivity to it. We're not unbiased. No one is completely removed from bias when they document any sort of history, mm -hmm. even if we try to be, right? Mm -hmm. And storytellers, writers, filmmakers, they're definitely not. Oh, for sure. Think about your own life. Yeah. I mean, how you think about your life has a bias because even though you were there and you witnessed everything in your life, you're still seeing it through a lens and you're going to what what one experience might have done for one person might be totally different than what it did for you. Yeah. Because of the way that your life is. Yeah. And you could reframe it later in life if you didn't think that was beneficial or not. Yeah, and that's the process that I try to help people to to go through when mm -hmm. they do coaching with me mm -hmm. and asking them to think about stories in real life that mm -hmm. inspire them, historical narratives. That process that you just described, that's what we do mm -hmm. subconsciously, but I help people to do it intentionally. Yeah, history history can be a beautiful thing, but it can be a messy thing when you're studying it as well. But what I love about history is the way that it can inspire us, right? And so a lot of these stories, uh, even the, the more tragic and darker ones, there is something that can be inspirational to us about them, right? So we're gonna- Or even as a warning. Yeah, ex yeah, exactly, right? Maybe not inspiring, but as a, mm. a warning, watch out. Inspiring <laughs> of how you don't want your life to go. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely gonna be some of these here. So let's go ahead and get into it. So we're gonna have essentially four different categories that we'll talk about. And these are all different uh, genres that can get paired with you know, historical narratives. And there's more that 
I'm we're not going to have time to talk about. So this is just a this few. This intro is already long, so yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. I can talk about this stuff for hours. So let's go ahead and start with the the political epics. Lincoln. Which I know sounds really boring. Yeah, Lincoln's a great the first one. First one I thought of. Yeah, yeah, we just watched that pretty recently, right? Mm -hmm. That's the Steven Spielberg uh, Lincoln film with uh, Daniel Day Lewis as Lincoln. And so, yeah, what'd you think of that one? I thought it was really interesting because you don't think of, like, if you read just read Lincoln, like you just get the like in your textbook, you just get a little bit. So I I liked in that movie how you saw more of the throughout just like one snapshot of his life like it was the yeah. end of his life but it was like oh like he has a wife he has kids he's dealing with the stress of the house he's dealing with the stress of the war he's dealing with this oh he's laughing like this like it showed a more complete picture than what my history book portrayed which yeah. i appreciated yeah because we always get a very stoic Yes. Sense of Lincoln. Like when you look at the $5 bill or when you look at pictures, right? Mm -hmm. Portraits. Always get this idea of a really stoic man. Who barely talked. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, he, he felt really fleshed out in the film. There was a humanity that I really came across there. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that what you're saying about these struggles and sacrifices, right? Yeah. Because Lincoln has to kind of play the long game. Uh, with the whole Emancipation Proclamation and the Civil War. There's a lot to navigate, and it took a toll yeah. on him personally. Yeah. And to be able to see that, him playing that long game, you know, I think really it was well done. It's a good film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. So it's interesting because that's a political epic about a real-life political figure, right? Right. And then this... Uh, political epic, this next one, is it's going to kind of bleed into the next category, which is historical fiction. But it's also a political epic uh, in a different sense. So usually when we think of of epic in terms of like a, like a, like a, I think it's a macro genre, but the epic is usually an individual versus some big power of some mm -hmm. sort, right? So the individual versus the state. And again, yeah. this comes back to the underdog, right? Right. So one of my favorite stories that really encapsulates that is uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Mm -hmm. So this is an older one, and there's a lot of people I know that haven't seen this film. If you haven't seen it, I think it's fantastic. And I highly recommend it because it captures that struggle of a common man, right? Trying to as an individual, figure out how can I make a difference despite the corruption of the state. And it's a, you know, there's that tragicness, and I'll spoil a little bit of it here, where, where you have Jefferson Smith, which is probably like one of the most patriotic American names you could mm -hmm. think of. You know, you have that moment in the middle of the film when he realizes like he, that innocence, right, is yeah. kind of melts away. And it's kind of like a, like a fall in the garden where he wakes up and he's conscious and he realizes, wow, this corruption runs deep. Mm -hmm. And this country that I love is not as pure and perfect as I thought it was. You know, I really love what he talks about in that film about the lost causes worth fighting for and him being challenged uh, if America is a lost cause worth fighting for. Mm -hmm. that's relevant today, <laughs> right? This movie yeah. is extremely relevant for right now. Yeah. Um, I love 
especially the filibuster sequence. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, it's so good. It's like just moment after moment in there, right? Doesn't he break open, is it the Constitution or is it the Declaration of Independence and he reads every part of it? I think he does all of it at some point. He does point. all of it. Oh, gosh. Well, he had like, what, 20 hours or something? So you gotta He does fill the it Bible. He does all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, man. But, you know, that movie, just seeing how much the fight, like, takes out of him. And mm-hmm. it has that glimmer of hope that, you know, one man can make a difference. Yeah. Which is why it's it's inspiring. Now it's a it's a funny movie to talk about too in context because boy would I have loved to have been around when this movie first came out. Why is that? So this when is did like it come out? What 1930s. Year? 30. Okay. Um 1939. Oh, so 39. right on the cusp of World War II. Oh. Yeah. Now this it gets even better because check this out. So when the movie came out the many people in Congress hated it. Many people who are in politics found it grotesque. They hated it. They tried to boycott it. But then, which is funny, and it was actually labeled as communist propaganda. Really? Yes. Wow. Anti-American. How is it anti-American? Well, I guess it does. But imagine if you're in 1939, there's like no no film that's coming out that's like this, right? It's a bold film. It's a bold film and it's revealing. But then then this is when you know you're in trouble, right? This is when you, you need to question what side you're on. The film was then banned in three countries, 1939, 1940, Spain, Italy, and Germany. Oh, well, shucks. So, you know, if you get banned in those countries at this time, maybe you're doing something right. Now, it's it's interesting, too, because this movie was also when the Germans took over France. When they took it over, they banned all West, like all those types of films. And the last film that the theaters chose to show in France was this one. Interesting. Yes. And they did it as protest, you know? Yeah. This film has a very rich history just in terms of how it was distributed and all the controversy with it uh, as well. But yeah, if you haven't seen it, highly recommend it. Any other thoughts on Mr. Smith? Now, I know Mr. Smith is fiction. It's not true. Right. But... I think it does give a it does give a glimpse into the political system. Yes. We actually in history class we watched it to learn about how politics oh, really? worked. Yes. Definitely. That's actually how I first Did found it. the film. I think it was in eleventh grade we watched it. Mm. I think. Your education was filled with too many movies. <laughs> yeah, we did mm. watch a lot of movies and how did I not watch any movies in school? We went did to you, the same high school. What did you have heck? to watch Gandhi and AP World History? No. Oh, see, we watched that. We watched part of Band of Brothers. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. But I can't think of any other movies we watched. Well, yeah, and you, you're right on that it's historical fiction, right? Mm-hmm. And that kind of bleeds into the next category here. So we can have stories that are like Lincoln about real events Mm -hmm. and it's our retelling of them, right? Creative retellings. But we can also have stories that utilize history and historical backdrops 
uh, in order to better understand history through fictional characters, right? But one right? must be careful mm -hmm. because then it can become history because we keep retelling the retelling of it and not the true story. Mm. And then what happens is you get like an idiocracy where they believe that, <laughs> what is it, Charlie Sheen was idiocracy Hitler? into this. Isn't that what they believe? Like they retell history and they're well, like- Yeah, because you have the great dictator, right? Yeah, that's exactly. the Charlie Chaplin movie. Well, I'm also thinking about uh, Pocahontas, Oh, the Disney ooh, movie. that's a good, because that's a that good example like, of this. Yeah, that is, there is a that historical, is historical story fiction. behind it, but like, when you actually read about John Smith, like, he's not a good guy. Right. He is not a good guy. But in that movie, he's portrayed as a good guy. And so I feel like a lot of generation is, like, has kind of a weird view of him because of that movie. And it's That's hard fair. to actually understand what happened in that time period. That's fair. So. <clears throat> yeah, facts. Excuse me. So, yeah. So, so facts are good. Stories are good. And stories are powerful. Because mm -hmm. they can completely change the way we view history. Yeah, absolutely. So let me give you some positive examples of where I think this is done right. So this is one we might not typically think of, but I'm going to put it here. Uh, Great Gatsby. I disagree. That, that is historic. not history. No, no, no. It's historical fiction. Okay. So Great Gatsby is considered to be the great American novel. So that's an interesting title that it, it's given, is that it's essentially supposed to be the quintessential American experience. Well, so, that's unfortunate for all of us Americans, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> well, because it's the idea of the American dream, like anyone can come to this country and be anything they want to be, right? And so the 1920s is the backdrop, and it's about a guy who does that. He comes from nothing, and he wants to make himself into a somebody, right? Mm -hmm. And he, But what we find out later about Gatsby, behind all the facade and everything that he puts up, you know, there's this these accusations of, oh, he got his money from bootlegging or from the mob or something like that. And within Great Gatsby, it's a parable uh, of what was happening historically at the time. It, and it's telling that parable through characters. So in the 1920s, there's this big boom, the roaring 20s, right? Where it looks like it's very optimistic and it looks like, America really has it all together, right? But there's something underneath that's not right, that's crumbling, where we realize that we built all these things on these false promises and these false hopes and expectations so that now America, there, there's, a, there's a, a consequence and a suffering that takes place. That literally is the story of the great Gatsby, of that character. He embodies the night, that time period, right? He embodies that. And then his story, the tragic end that it leads to, mirrors what was happening with America at the time. So we get to learn a bit about history in a very, through a very allegorical personal- Allegorical way. Allegorical way, exactly. Okay, I never thought of it that way, but I'm still on the fence about putting it under a historical narrative. Yeah, I mean, it's it a different kind, right? It's classic literature. Well, it's like you can imagine what people reading that book, because this is what, we do with history is we tell stories to make sense of it. And I think Great Gatsby is a wonderful example of telling a fictional story to make sense of how did we get here in America? How did this happen? 
yeah, so it's fascinating. It's a great book, and I like the the Boz Lerman film with Leonardo DiCaprio. I like the way that it utilizes music, and yes, that includes the the hip hop music because I love that it kind of helps to understand, you know, what that jazz music, how scandalous it was at the time. So, but Great Gatsby is not the only one. Musicals actually uh, do this as well a lot, right? So two musicals that come to mind. So you've got the, also based on a book, you've got Les Miserables, where again, it uses the French Revolution, which is a real event. So this is more of what you're talking about, where it uses a real event, but it's creating fictional characters. Within that. Within that event, right? Mm-hmm. But that's a powerful story because, you know, it's really a story about how compassion can lead to redemption, right? And we see that the French Revolution, that was a hard period of time. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not from that time. I'm glad period. I'm not either, you know? <laughs> but that ounce of compassion, like, made such a difference for mm -hmm. when, the, when the characters were extended it, right? So there's a lot of tragedy, but there's also a lot of beauty and hope taking place. And so highlighting that within all the turmoil of the French Revolution, there's these moments where people's lives are, are being changed and they're just trying to do the best they can with what they have. It's funny because I think the first time we watched Les Miserables, you were not a fan of it, right? I don't think I am a fan of it. Well, I remember the now. second time you watched it, though. You, I think you, I can appreciate it now, but it's still not It's not something I want to sit down and enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a certain kind of experience, a tragedy to it for sure. But there's also, there's like the beauty. Yeah. But, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't like tragedies. Well, that, that's history, right? <laughs> I know. I know. That's history. But like, I, tragedies are just, I mean, they do make you grateful for what you have, which Ooh, is yes, kind of the absolutely. point. Absolutely. But I don't want to watch so many of them. Yeah. Like, you need to balance. You like, you have to... It depends on your personality, but, right. like, if I watch too many tragedies or if I just watch one really intense tragedy, it's going to mess me up for a while. Yeah. And it's hard for me to see beauty or whatever it is you're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, that's coming out of it or something like that um, because I can easily just get fixated on that tragedy. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, okay, Les Miserables, like... Yes, it's a great movie. Woohoo. But I, I just I'm you're never gonna see me like, oh what a impactful, amazing, fabulous story. Let's watch it again. Yeah. Well, it's the redemption, right? Because I think that's that's something that something in us like awakens when we hear stories of redemption and we realize that okay, yeah. anything is possible, right? Yeah. And I like I like stories of redemption. So let me let me balance this out. It's hard we, when we, then we, the the one guy shows compassion to the one officer or whatever and he just kills himself. It's like, oh great. You know? And I yeah. get why that is like yeah. that. Like, you know, he just couldn't accept it and the system couldn't accept it. But it's still like, I don't know. I think I would have rather seen a little bit more hope than everybody dies. Everybody's sad. So let me bounce out another musical that uses its historical setting in a really phenomenal way, but a more optimistic way. That's the sound of music. That is more optimistic. The historical context doesn't really 
kick in until, until the, the third, third act. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. exactly. So you're kind of aware of what's going on in the background, but it comes to the forefront yeah. in that third act. And being able to, oh, it's just such a great story, mm-hmm. you know, about them finding this love and then that love uh, gets challenged in a way, you know, because you you have this impending doom of uh, fascism, right? Right. Of Nazi dictatorship that's kind of looming over this happy, wonderful family trying to just have a good life. Be, have yeah. a good life, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then them, of course, trying to find a way to escape it, right? Uh, in some way. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that sound of music's a good one. Yeah, no, I like that one. Of course I like that one, but, you know, who doesn't? Well, one, it's, you do have the historical background, but it's not as prominent. You're, it, it's more the story of this family and how are they going to react to the world that's changing around them. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's good. I like that. A couple others that I'll do as well. So I know you haven't seen this one. Many people consider this one of the greatest films of the 21st century, so it's called There Will Be Blood. That was one I've told you about before. I've seen enough and blood one, in my life. Yeah, I know. You're a nurse, so you, you could be I don't need pardoned to watch more. from this one, even though it does not live up to that title until literally the last minute. Hmm. So there is there is blood. Let me but, guess it's a revenge movie. So it not quite. So There Will Be Blood is takes place at the dawn of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So that moment when we're starting to get the rise of big business, oil tycoons, right? That whole thing. And so you have a character, Daniel Day-Lewis's character, that embodies that. And then you have Paul Dano's character, who we'll talk about him in a bit. Paul Dano's character represents tradition. He's a Pentecostal preacher, uh, very charismatic, and he represents— That's funny that a Pentecostal preacher would represent tradition. I don't think of those two as going together. Well, representing like kind of like that traditional America, Great Awakening, right? Like that kind of— mm-hmm. And then you have this new kind of perspective on things that's rising, you know, uh, with Daniel Day-Lewis's character. So it's like the tension between like— big business and and big religion. And of course, it's in the 20th century where a lot of that charismatic, that form of religion and Christianity is rising in that time as well. Okay, interesting. Um, so, but yeah, that tension is so interesting there because they're trying to constantly one-up each other throughout the film and they're trying to gain some sort of power. It's a film about power and about trying to manipulate your way to to have that power over somebody, right? That lust for power and how that lust for power, uh, it actually contributes to your you losing your humanity, right? So each of the characters lose things that are important to them, particularly relationships. And you see that they have to sacrifice something on the altar in order to maintain their power. And so it's a really fascinating film. I, I I've said it, to people before, and I'll say it again, I think that if you're a film guy and you've not seen this, I think Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Dano give what I would say are two of the best acting performances I've ever seen in a film. They give it all, and they really, really sell this conflict. 
And it is so, it's one of those movies that I've, I've only seen it one time, but mm. I will never forget it because it is just so entrenched, you know, yeah. in you. Because When I think of Paul Dano, I just think of Love and Mercy. Yes, which we will get there shortly. <laughs> like, we will so come back to it's hard for me that. to imagine the kid who's like sitting there listening to headphones, like being a preacher, intense or... No, Paul Dano is like the perfect sleazy, oh, you know. Really? Oh my gosh, yeah. That's interesting. He's, he's amazing. So I'll do one more here. And this is, uh, this is one of my favorite films of all time. Um, and it's Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastard. Once again, watch out history. We might totally change it. We might totally change it. Now, but that but that's the thing is that that's actually the theme of the film is manipulation mm. in in some way. I mean, there's a few th themes going on. There's moral ambiguity, vengeance because it's a Tarantino film, right? Moral ambiguity. Yes, I think that is accurate. Yes, it's very accurate for that film. We're so mad at you because you killed people, so we're gonna try to kill you. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. like okay, yeah. and I I think that's you all... tortured people, so we're gonna torture you. Yep, it's exactly. Like... But but that's but that's the point of the film. That's the way you as an audience member are being manipulated. Yeah. Because you you think about it, right? You see Brad Pitt's. Uh, his crew, the bastards, right? And you see that they are starting to resort to some of the same methods yeah. that the Nazis use. And it's 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 meant to make you feel uncomfortable, but they are your protagonist. So you're also like being manipulated to identify with them mm -hmm. and to be okay, right? Which the in same a way, way could make you understand how someone it, in Germany could exactly, end up being a Nazi. Exactly. Oh, that's the point. Yes. <laughs> You get to that moment in the, sorry, the spoilers here, but you get to that moment in the fifth, there's five acts in this film, in the final act of the film. And you're watching, you know, the whole power of cinema, right? Because you're watching uh, Hitler and all the Nazis in a movie theater watching a movie, mm -hmm. right? That's propaganda. Yes. And they're cheering that propaganda, right? Mm -hmm. They are clapping and cheering as they're watching the actor who's reenacting, re right? And that he's got a really fascinating story, the actor who has to reenact all his war things. And yeah. you can't quite tell w when he seems to hint that like it's taken a toll on him. You can't tell if he, he's acting or if he's genuinely bothered that he has to keep reliving this right yeah which is what makes that character so fascinating um there's so many great characters in that film but when you're watching them what clapping and hooting and hollering right and then of course you get the moment who sends a message to germany i send the message to germany right and so you have the jewish woman whose family was killed in that one of the maybe my favorite opening scene of all time in a film just in terms of how it builds tension, right? It's the best way you can talk to have that escalation. But when she gets her revenge, and of course the guys, uh, they burst into the movie theater with their machine guns and they're shooting Hitler in the face. Uh, and when I saw this in a movie theater, everyone was clapping and cheering. And I didn't realize, you don't realize it at the time until you think about it later, but you're like, I just got manipulated. And that's what stories can do, right? There's a whole book called The Storytelling Animal about the art of this. 
Hitler was manipulated by a story of the um the the Valkyrie, right? The flight of the Valkyries or whatever it is, the opera. And that story is where he started to get a lot of his Aryan and all those ideas that he would later develop. So it was a story that influenced him. And now Tarantino's playing with this whole idea of how stories influence us and how it can make us okay with certain things. I mean, literally, like you have this line, Hans, you know, the Jew hunter is like, I think one of the most fascinating villains ever in a film. And you see him get his comeuppance because he tries to get away at the end of the film, you know, because he's so clever. He tries to get away with things. He gets his comeuppance in that scene, right? And of course, it's terrible what they do to him, but you're okay with it, right? Because of how the narrative has painted everything. So it's like, that's a great film shows of talking how messed about messed up we are as people. Yeah, but that's a great film that shows how history can be messy and how it can manipulate us into thinking a certain way, right? Right. Yeah. Basically, yeah. And the more I think about that movie, the more I don't want to watch it. <laughs> yeah, because you know, you know it's coming, right? You know it's right? coming, and you know that there's so many mixed feelings when you're watching it because yeah. you don't want to have that moral ambiguity. You want to think that you're a moral upstanding person, but as mm -hmm. you watch it, you start to blur that line. Well, in war is amp the moral ambiguity of war is baked into that film, right? Well, it's like that movie um, Hacksaw Ridge. Where oh, yeah, let's, starts, let's talk about that. When let's, he starts let's get saving into the, war films. The, um, <laughs> the enemy and he starts putting, he starts giving the enemy morphine or whatever it yes, is the drug yes. is and he starts saving them across the ridge and the, the people at the bottom are like, wait a second, what's going on here? Why are you saving these Japanese people? And the whole line gets blurred. Yeah, and it, what's ironic about Hacksaw Ridge is that that there is that moral ambiguity, right, of what Andrew Garfield's character is doing there, but he's not compromising his values. Mm -hmm. He's a very black and white character. Yes. You know, he will not touch a gun. He will not resort to violence, even if he's on the field, right? Even if it's life or death. So it's so ironic, right, that the moral ambiguity of war and you take a black and white character that has values that are very pacifist, uh, what do you do with that? You, it's a very, now that's that's based on a true story. That's a real person that did right. that, right? Mm -hmm. So some war films do that. Some are based on real people and some are based on real events of war, but they have fictional characters there that they use. So an example of that is, well, it's not entirely fictional characters because again, it's, it's kind of true. There, I mean, it's even based off a book, um, but you have Grave of the Fireflies. I knew you were going to say that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's about painting the the loss of, <laughs> of lots of things. Yeah, everything. Of everything in of war, everything. right? Everything, yeah. But, I mean, we talked about that on our Studio Ghibli episode. Mm -hmm. It is a devastating, gut-wrenching film about the ways that war affects uh, the innocent mm -hmm. children, right? Because mm -hmm. we don't ever think of how war affects them. And so we see war from their point of view. Mm -hmm. And we see how the 
ideologies that we prop up uh, to perpetuate wars, they actually lead to our demise, right? So you have the, the, the young man who holds on to this stubbornness and pride that is symbolic of what Japan was holding on to. Because even when Nazi Germany was taken down, Japan didn't want to surrender. Like, nope, we're they going. were holding on to that, right? Well, and, you saw even the boy, uh, the little boy. Doesn't he say, um, oh, is it this movie or The Wind Rises where he's like, how is it that the great Japan has fallen? Like he says that, like when the papers come out that Japan surrenders and he's like, how could we do that? Yeah. We're the great Japan. Right, right. We can't lose. Yeah. And he's like absolutely shocked mm -hmm. that that actually happened. And he's only a kid. Yeah. But you can see how those yeah, travel yeah, that, down. Yeah, that's Grave of the Fires, Flies, I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it travels down and that's what ultimately leads to his downfall, right? Yeah. Is it sees that war is, there's the physical side of how war affects you, but there's also the ideological side and mm -hmm. how that destroys you too. Well, and how it destroys the um, the societal structures. Because, I mean, you see these kids, mm -hmm. they've lost their parents. Right. They're now in the care of relatives who could honestly care less about them. Right, right. And, well, that's tragic in itself, but then you see them... You see, I think it's the aunt who's like, why aren't you helping? I don't remember how old he yeah. is. But she's basically like, you're old enough to help. Why aren't you helping? Right. And it's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm seven. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. It's you see this breakdown in like expectations on the younger generations right, right. to carry the burdens of the, and the ideologies mm -hmm. of the older generation. Now, what do you do if you have a story where kind of like Hacksaw Ridge, where you have a character that is basically indoctrinated with these ideologies and then chooses to go against them. So you, you get something like To End All Wars, mm -hmm. which is based on, those are real, I think for the most part, those are real characters that are in, in that film. Yeah, um, I, I do know that two of the characters were involved in that film, mm -hmm. in the making of it. But you have that Americans, the allies, they're taken as POWs, uh, in the Japan, in those camps in Japan, right? Mm -hmm. That were brutal. But then you have them. Aren't they know, in like some other spot though? They're in Japan. I thought they were in like China or South Asia or something like that. I'm pretty sure it's, well, I know it's the Japanese because. Well, I know the Japanese are the people, but I thought they were in some other land doing I don't know. something. I don't know. Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. But you have. You have a lot of things going on there. You have them like start the school where they want to educate people in philosophy, right? Yeah. And then you have the, of course, my favorite moment of the film is where you have all these Japanese that are coming over and mm -hmm. they need help and they're wounded, mm -hmm. but their own people won't help them, right? Mm -hmm. Because of the whole pride and, you know, because you have the the one guy who like tries to kill himself, right? Because if you're defeated, it's yeah. an honor, shame culture. And then you have the, the guy, the main guy uh, who goes and is like, these are dying, wounded human beings. And his general is telling him no, like, or his major, it's his major, I think, uh, who says, you cannot help the enemy. You cannot, like, let them suffer and die. Not even the Japanese. Not, they're not even helping their own people. 
and he sees the humanity and then he goes and that inspires all the people, right? So there's like this beautiful humanity that comes out in the worst situation. Mm -hmm. So that film to end all wars, that's another, that's one that a lot of people sleep on and a lot of people never even heard of, but I think it's, it's definitely worth your time. And so is the silence a historical? That's a historical one. It is, but we talked about that in the metaphysical journey. Okay. So I'm not going to cover it again here. Gotcha. But yeah, I think that would also fall Because I'm thinking about Japan now. Yeah, I know. I know. We kind of got onto the, a lot of these World War II mm-hmm. uh, films here, right? Well, let me do one more that's World War One, And that's a film that we just watched. Uh, 1917. 1917. Yeah. So what'd you think of that one? I enjoyed that one. It was yeah. It was extremely anxiety ridden as you watch it, though. Yeah, like the whole time you're watching it, you're on edge. Yeah, because of the way that it's filmed, it's like you're super on edge, and you're just wanting this mission to be over. You're wanting the movie to be over because that's how the characters are feeling. Right, right. So they did a great job from a film standpoint. Oh my gosh, 1917 has to be one of the best made films I've ever seen. So it is famous for the one take. Right. Or the one shot where basically it's just one continuous motion. So it's almost like a play, you know, where everything's very rehearsed. And but we watched that documentary where everything had to be timed out so perfect, Mm -hmm. you know, and they had to switch cameras and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But you have essentially you're following just two people on a journey. They got to get from here to there. That's it. That's the film. It's there's no like grand epic battle or anything like that. So what I love about that is that you are essentially the the eye of the camera. You're following them around. You're hearing the heavy breathing. You're seeing what they see. You're experiencing it as it comes to them with no edits. Yeah, so you're just amazed as you're you're watching this thing because there's like a bunker that collapses, there's a a helicopter that crashes and you're like gosh, all this there's this guy jumps in the river like off a hit cliff. All this stuff had to be timed out so well to nail it. But I think the thing that really fascinates me about 1917 is that the director, Sam Mendes, he was talking to his grandfather, I believe, who was on his deathbed. And his grandfather was a World War I vet. And he wanted to know stories about his experience in World War I. And he tells a story about a mission that he had to go on. And he goes, how many people have you told this story to? And he said, you never told it to anyone. So this man was about to die, go to his grave with this really powerful story, right? And it's not like a perfect adaptation of that story, but that's what inspired him to create it and to, to tell a similar kind of story, right? With those pieces in there. And I love that, that this is a film about unsung heroes. The people that do the small things that we don't think matter and that he doesn't think matter, right? Because he's just delivering a message and he gets to the end where he he's successful in his mission in a sense, but then the guy is just like, oh, okay. Yeah, Tomorrow, it's kind of a letdown. A yeah, letdown. it's a huge letdown, right? But he faces that mission with bravery and determination. And the story is structured in a very hero's journey-like way, which, you know, hero's journey, that's like a storytelling tool, you know? Um, but 
there's lots of allusions to the hero's journey, but what do you do like when you get to the end of the hero's journey and you're not really seen as a hero? That's a tough reality check there, but well, I think that's most people's story. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's it's a great uh parallel to life. But then you get the gift of hindsight because they have uh remember at the beginning of the film they have that date. I think April 6, 1917 or something like that. And I didn't, I just thought, okay, that just places the setting of the movie, right? But then when I looked it up, I was like, oh, wait, that's the day when there were events going on around them that were actually changing the, the tide of the war in the Allies' favor. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, snaps. So that's important. That is important. So his mission, you know, saving these lives, it matters in the grand scheme of it, even if he doesn't actually see that. We, as with history, have the gift of hindsight, right? Where we're able to look back and see, wow, this was meaningful. But it's hard to find that meaning when you're in the moment of the story, right? When you're in the thick of the narrative. Mm -hmm. And so seeing a character that does that, that confronts the horrors of war with bravery, determination, oh, and perseverance, it's... I mean, I saw this and I've been sitting on it since we saw it. And I, I'm going to just go on record and saying that it's probably my favorite war film, just in terms of like, because a good war film for me you mean has Pearl to- Pearl Harbor's not your favorite? Oh gosh. Pearl Harbor is not being <laughs> talked about here. No. Pearl Harbor is a terrible, terrible movie on so many levels. I guess we can't talk about it. <laughs> we can talk about how bad it is. No. No. No, um, but yeah, this this is a, a good war film, I think, really should show the horrors of war, right? Which is why uh, everyone recommends to me All Quiet on the Western Front, which I'll get to it eventually. Um, it's another World War I film. Um, that's very hard to sit through, apparently. But, but at the same time, I, I what do- What benefit is it to see more and more war films if you've already got kind of the message? Yeah, well, I think you have different things you're, you know, because I, I think a lot of war films can be really redundant. Yeah. So that's kind of why I like 1917. There was something refreshing about how the story was told and the intimacy, the small scale of it, right? But yet the smallness of it had a greater effect than they realized. So, but yeah, a lot of war films are just tragic. So let's move on to something lighter to talk about. Thanks. Biopics. Oh, come on. <laughs> History's rough, man. History's rough. Name one biopic that you're like, yay, that was that was so inspiring and You know happy. what? I'm going to do that right now. I'm going to start Pick off one. with a biopic that is exactly that. Inspiring, happy, all that stuff. You ready for this? Yes. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Thank you. That is a great one. So okay. why is that a great one, Tori? Because you see someone who's true to himself, like true to who he is. <laughs> both on screen mm. and off screen. Yes. And you see Mr. Rogers and you're like, yes, I want to be like him. Yeah. When you watch that movie, you're like, oh, I need to be kinder to everyone. I need to be kind. I need to pay attention to other people and know their yes. names and know what's going on in their lives. Yes. See, biopics, 
That's the only bio. Every other biopic, I say, I never want to be like you. I'm never going to do anything like that's that. That's fair. That's I fair. I do not like that. Your life turned out terrible. Right. This is a lot the of them are ca they're cautionary. This. They're oh. real life cautionary tales. But let's stay on the Mr. Rogers one for a second because I think I think that's that's the element of history that inspires us to to be like in a positive way, right? Because there's also the type of inspiring, like you said, where it's like, oh, well, I don't want to be like that. But Mr. Rogers is, I would consider this an aspirational biopic, right? This is who we aspire to be, a story that we aspire um, to participate in in some way. Yeah, that's one I want to rewatch again. Yeah, I'd be down to rewatch that one. Yeah, that's one of those ones that you want to throw on and just kind of remind yourself that they, there's goodness in the mm -hmm. world, right? We're capable of that goodness. Yes. I like it. I like it better when the biopics really focus in on a specific moment in a person's life because some biopics are too ambitious where they try to cover too much ground and it feels very surface levelly, right? Like which one? Um, I mean, there's a couple I can think of. Like Walk so, the Line. Yeah, we talk about Walk the Line. That's a long one. It's a long one. It tries to cover a lot and... I actually really was not a fan of it, honestly. I know that's like a... I'm not a fan of any biopic. <laughs> well, I'll get to the ones I really like in a moment. But that was one where I was just... I, I didn't really get into it. I didn't really like gain... Because a biopic should help me gain appreciation for a person and for what they contributed, right? And Walk the Line, it didn't really do that for me. And, it didn't and, even inspire me to listen to the music. Yeah, which, you know, I, maybe it does for some people. But for me, I was just kind of like, I don't know. And a lot of things that are hard for me about biopics is, again, like I've talked about the young genius and the old sage, right? And these biopics really do prop up on a pedestal, the young genius. And as... But almost as like something to aspire to, which is kind of no, icky. it doesn't feel that way. Well, I feel like it's a warning. I, I think we take it that way, but sometimes I wonder if that's what they are because I think there's an element where if you could see that and you could look at that and be like, man, look at all the pain that they went through, but they created this great work of art. So all that pain was worth it because it brought this I kind art of hate that notion of I know, you but have to suffer to make art. Like Right. But that's what a lot of these, that's kind of the, the narrative within the mm -hmm. narrative of a mm -hmm. lot of these, right? And that's what some people will take away from it. Mm -hmm. Where and I, and I and I and I don't disagree with the notion that suffering can produce great art because yeah. we know that suffering can produce great things in general, right? right? But when I watch a lot of these biopics, I wonder like, was it worth your marriage? Was it worth being alienated from your children? Was it worth rehab and addictions for the rest of your life, right? Mm -hmm. Or premature death? Was it worth it? No. And well, I think the thing is, is that the film kind of like, like something like Walk the Line is kind of, it makes me feel icky because there's this sense of like the filmmaker is trying to convince you it is worth it. It is okay for a person to lose all those things and to have all these terrible things based on their choices. 
because it made great art. Right? Isn't it feel weird like yeah. to think about that? Well, and and again, like I do think that there's there's biopics that do this more thoughtfully than others. Mm-hmm. So like I like the biopics where it really becomes less about the art and more about the person and about their journey and about how how they grew as a person from making art. Like Love and Mercy. So like Love and Mercy, that's a great example because you got these two time periods that are contrasted, right? You've got the young genius, Brian Wilson, who's making Pet Sounds, one of the greatest albums, most influential pop records of all time. And you see his creative process and you see, wow, this guy really is the young genius, right? But he's also losing. He's becoming alienated from people. And you contrast that with the period where he's older. The young, what is the young genius like 20 years after his peak? And he's lost. Sad. He's sad, yeah. You know, and he's forced to make art against his own will, right? He's got the psychotherapist. Well, he's almost like a child. Yeah. Like he goes from being a child who is treated like an adult mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. he's yes. a young genius to an adult who's treated like a yes, child. Yes. So well put. So well put there. With my really raspy voice. Here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's so good, you know, because then what do you do as the young genius when, you, when you're out of that? You have to work on yourself. You have to work on the things that were left by the wayside when you were forced to grow up too early, right? And that's what he does. And that's what uh, Melinda, right? That's what she helps him do is she helps him to work on the things that needed to, to change. And a lot of that was mental for Brian, right? Mm-hmm. And it's so beautiful because it really becomes a story about how love and mercy heal the young genius. Mm -hmm. And they help him to have a meaningful life through meaningful connections. It's about him reconnecting with people again, Mm -hmm. you know, not through art, not through his fame, but genuinely because they love and care about him. Well, and he does, like the music flows through him when he... When he sees Melinda, doesn't he write that song that's yeah. like beautiful? Yeah. So he, it's, he like, it's not a, that the art is wrong or it's it's terrible. Like yeah. it comes back in a new, beautiful way. Yes. Without because, so much stress and effort. Because he's not making art for the sake of art, right? He's making art for the sake of healing now. Yes. And and yeah, it's such a good film. See, that's one that's the biopic that I think transcends. The rest. It's still sad. It is sad, but it but it's a very hopeful ending. And yes. the cool thing about Brian Wilson is that he does go on and lives a great life, mm-hmm. you know. And we had the pleasure of getting to see him perform Pet Sounds in its entirety, which was wild because I think he had like a little mental snap in the middle of the show because he walks off. Do you remember this? He like walked off and left in the middle of a song. I know. I remember. And we just kind of, as the audience, had to give him a minute. Because, I mean, it can't be easy playing that album every night in its yeah. entirety, right? Especially after watching that film and seeing what it did to him. That can't be easy. But then, you know, he comes out and he keeps going. And that's mm-hmm. like his story, you know? And he goes on and the music that he's made over the years, it reflects a different place he's in in life. So he gets a happy ending, you mm-hmm. know, which is better than a lot of the other ones really great to see you know i'm looking at my list of biopics here like i've talked about being Ro- of the guy from queen 
Oh yeah, Bohemian Rhapsody. See, that's a biopic I didn't really like because I felt like a biopic should really, as a film, if you're making a film, right, it should really capture that artist. And I felt like Bohemian Rhapsody was like just the most blandest generic (laughs) telling of the most eccentric man in rock and roll, right? Freddie Mercury. Mm -hmm. But I, again, I also think Bohemian Rhapsody, it's just kind of an odd biopic in the sense that I just kind of feel like it. It's just a downhill slope. Yeah. And you know, I don't know. It just didn't hit me. It didn't hit me the way Love and Mercy or even Rocket Man did, which I've talked about Rocket Man uh, in that because I think that intervention scene towards the end of the film, um, that might be, that's one of my favorites uh, from any biopic. Um, but I've talked about that on a whole previous episode, so I'm not going to do that here. Are biopics only music people? No, definitely not. Okay. There's one other music one or or a couple other music ones I'll mention real quick, and then I'll go to some non-music ones. So remember the the new Elvis film that came out, the mm-hmm. Boz Lerman one? Uh, the whole idea of fame being a prison, I think that was captured so well right, right in that film. Because that's a film, man, I still think about that film. Because I think about that idea of like, wow, you know, fame as a prison. And we got a guest coming on the next episode who wrote a book called Who Wants to Be Famous? And it's all about this idea of fame as a as a kind of a, a cell. Yeah, that's a film that really, it sticks with you. Because then you, it starts, you really start to reevaluate, do I really want that? Do I really want somebody else running my life for me? Because the Elvis film is tragic, man. You know, talk about being the king, but not really being the king. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes it leads to madness, like, uh, like Amadeus. Oh, Amadeus. Yeah, great film. But and very exaggerated history because we don't quite know Mozart's what what's true and what's not well, true about yeah, his life. Yeah. It's you don't kind have of anyone, you funny. don't have any eyewitnesses who are alive to tell you about it. Yeah, so you kind of have to take things at at face value and interpret things. Now, one biopic that really shocked me, I, I was telling you about it. I was watching it one night while you were gone because uh, I heard about it and I looked it up. You can watch it free on YouTube. And uh, it's called Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story. And this is going to sound really weird, but it tells the story of Karen Carpenter with Barbie dolls. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is brilliant because it's like, you know, her whole struggle is with anorexia and Barbies. I mean, mm-hmm. it it works together on so many levels, right? So that was a biopic. I like when biopics like talk about things that are like, larger issues, right? So like Love and Mercy talks about depression and mental health. Mm-hmm. Rocket Man talks about love relationships and, you know, loving the inner child within, right? Mm-hmm. Listening to that, nourishing that. And Karen Carpenter's story is probably the most powerful story about like anorexia and body self-image, right? And it's told with Barbie dolls. And it's just, it's just, again, it never ceases to amaze me what you can do with a good film. But let's talk about some non-music ones. So I'm going to have what I call the the Andrew Garfield trilogy here. <laughs> Andrew Garfield's just in a lot of these historical narratives, right? So there's there's three of these that I'll do that are, are biopics. So do you remember that film Breathe? Of course. 
about the got longest uh, mm -hmm. survivor of polio, right? Yep. Very inspiring story. Uh, very great performance there. Mm -hmm. But about how you, you're handed like something that's basically like a terminal death sentence. Death sentence. And here's the way, your certificate for a miserable life. Right. But the way you see him make the most of that mm -hmm. and his family, it's very touching. Mm -hmm. That's that's a more optimistic biopic, too, right? Yeah. I would say. I just remember a lot of a lot of positivity. One that's a lot more of a downer uh, that he's in is The Eyes of Tammy Faye. Mm -hmm. Tammy Faye, Jim Baker, the their downfall. Man, that we that's a that's another film that like I've only seen it one time, but there's so much in there that I think about, right? Because it's about good intentions. You could have the best of intentions in wanting to do something. That's a lot of these biopics. But then they become corrupt in mm -hmm. some way because there's something that you want that that almost becomes perverted mm -hmm. uh as you're trying to attain it, right? And it's usually either like money, power, sex, like it's it's one of those idols, right? That really comes in the way of that. And you you just What is see, it that Tammy Faye wants? I'm trying to remember that movie. Well, that's the is thing. Is it just attention? Well, that's the thing with Tammy Faye is like it's like acceptance because her family rejected her yeah, kind of at, a thing. So now she wants acceptance from the rest of the world. Because it's the eyes of Tammy Faye, because there's something behind those eyes that's right? The and eyelashes. The eyelash. The, there's a facade that she puts on because as the right. film goes on, I mean, Jessica Chastain's fantastic in it. As the film goes on, um, she masks herself more and more, mm -hmm. right? She's hiding the true Tammy as the film goes on to where mm -hmm. you can't even really see her. Mm -hmm. You, you want to see those eyes. And then it's not till you get to the end where she's, you start to see more who she really is. And how she's fighting for that acceptance. Yeah. Uh, and you have um, Jim Baker, which is almost even the scarier thing because there is no mask with Jim Baker. Jim Baker throughout the film is becoming that thing, right? So whereas Tammy Faye is putting on this facade and there's this kind of glimpse of a, a genuine human that wants to be noticed and recognized, Jim Baker is... That's not there for him. The true Jim Baker is be or at least the way the film's presenting it, right? We know through narrative therapy that like we don't define people by their problems. And that's why I really appreciated that film showing that humanity for people that I, who I'm not a fan of Jim Baker, I'm not a fan of things he did and Jerry Falwell and a lot of characters in that film. But there's a humanity that's presented there. Like the scene at the end, the last time that you see Jerry Falwell in the prison, right? And you see the remorse that he has. And I mean, there's stories about how at the end of his life, when he was in prison, he really learned something mm -hmm. and he grew from Didn't it. Didn't Jim Baker say that this was the best thing that ever happened to me or something like that? Yeah, I, I, I have heard that before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where he said that that was the best thing that could have happened to him. And you realize that behind these biopics, these are human beings, mm -hmm. right? And these are stories, retellings of real human lives. So the the kind of the third one of this Andrew Garfield trilogy is uh, came out the same year as this, is Tick, Tick, Boom, which I've also talked about on this podcast before, so I don't want to get too much into it. But what what are your thoughts on that one? 
I didn't love it. Mm-hmm. You didn't love the story. You didn't love the performances. You didn't love, like, what, what specifically? Don't really remember too much about it, to be honest. Was it him whining that he's 30 and he hasn't done anything with his life? <laughs> yes, that sounded like you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I think it was just that whole glorified starving artist type thing. Like, let's yeah. just grunge it out in New York. That's how the film is going for most of it, right? They do this in Rocket Man as well, where you get the little glimpses into how they they see things, right? The mm -hmm. little like creative glimpses where where, you know, but but then, but then this is where the film gets me. Um, there's two things in this film that I think really elevate it to a high place for me. When um, I do the moment yeah, that yeah, I yeah. remember is uh -huh. after the performance that goes extremely well. Yes. He gets the phone call and the lady's like Everybody loved it. Yep. Mm -hmm. This is awesome. Mm -hmm. Everyone's talking about it. And he's like, great. Like I, this was my, you know. My big break. My big break. And they're like, nope. You just got to keep going. Can't wait to see the next one. Can't wait to see the next one. And it's like, oh my gosh. Like people spend their whole lives making one movie and we watch it for an hour and we're like, eh, what's the next one? Yeah. Yeah. See, that's where the film gets me. That's mm -hmm. where it's like, whoa. That rock opera he was writing is like, it's, who cares about it anymore? So then he does Tick, Tick, Boom. That's like the next musical that he writes, I thought right? Rent was the next one. No, Rent is- Oh, Rent's is the his, next, next that's one. His, okay. Yeah, that's his final one before he dies. But, but yeah, seeing the journey. Because I do think that Tick, Tick, Boom is actually subverting the young genius yes. in favor of the- the old wise sage. Well, that's because the whole thing that he's like, I'm 30 and everybody else did this before they were 30. Yeah. Doesn't he say, Paul McCartney was what, 20 yeah. something? Yeah, he's talking about Sar I think Sergeant Pepper. Yeah, he, he names Pet all these yeah. young people who did amazing things and he's like, what have I done? I'm living here with 50,000 roommates. See, Tick, Tick, Boom, I think is is pro what I would personally identify with of this this more like wise sage, right? Now, unfortunately, his life was cut short, so we yeah. didn't really get to see, but we we do see growth, right? Mm -hmm. growth. That's that's yes. what I really like about his career is you see Jonathan Larson grow from this rock opera to then tick tick boom to rent, right? Mm -hmm. You see how he gets better every time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's a more genuine story that I think I personally get really inspired by. That's why I really loved it. The other thing that really sets this part of film apart from me is that there's this very personal story between him and his friend, right? And then his friend- The like, friend who gets HIV. Yeah, and he's mm -hmm. diagnosed with that, right? And yeah. the way that his art and his obsession with making art is- putting a wall between him being there for his friend at his most valuable time, right? That moment where he's in the, um, I think it's the Hollywood Bowl or wherever he's at and he goes to the he break, goes to the piano and he sings that song. Oh my gosh, like that that made me cry because it was it felt so just authentic the way that he was he was basically narrating the the, the, the narrative, the story of his friendship. And realizing that that friendship is more important than the art that he's creating mm -hmm. because art is fine, but the journey of making art with people that you care about 
is more fulfilling than the art itself. And that's what he's realizing as he's singing that. And that's what helps him to be there for his friend, right? And to to be able to, to work through that. And, it, and it's, again, it's him telling, retelling that story because he's forgotten it by that point. And that's, that's what moves him. That's what moves me watching it, you know? Mm-hmm. I was like, my gosh, I, oh man. Yeah, I, I love that film. There's so much in there that is going on, but a little more appreciation for Tick, Tick, yeah. Boom, maybe? Yeah, it's yeah. not my cup of tea. Well, Andrew Garfield could sing. Yes, How cool is that too? Pretty right? cool. So I think uh, that's easily one of his best performances. That's saying a lot because he's probably my favorite modern day actor. And I was going to say, which how much we talk about Andrew Garfield. It's amazing we don't know him. <laughs> Listen, if he's ever listening to this podcast. Come no. on out to Loxahatchee. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for taking your craft seriously and choosing great stories. I don't know. I think we're kind of winding down on this though. I think, you know, there's a lot of th- stories we haven't really talked about. There's even stories that actually there's one story that does all of these things, that does the epic, that does the biopic, that does historical fiction in a way, and does war. Wind Rises. Animated. Yeah, which we talked about that on the Ghibli film, but I do think that's a really interesting one where they actually take two real-life people and they merge them into one person. There's some real life inspiration from the director's own life that he's putting into it. There's some historical fiction going on. There's commentary on war. There's the artist in a way where he's trying to craft something meaningful and all the obstacles he's trying to overcome to do it and that challenge like like the epic. So that's a great, like if you want to see a film that encapsulates all of these Historical ignore everything things. else we said. Ignore everything. Watch, that watch Wind Rises. That has everything in it. Yeah, <laughs> it does. But yeah, but this is, I mean, this is the beginning of our journey with the underdog, right? Because whether you're following someone through war or it's the epic or the the artist that's trying to make themselves known and, and climb to the top, right? These, these are underdog stories. And that's a lot of the stories in history that- David and Goliath. Yeah, I'm thankful these stories get told. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people will say, you know, history is written by the winners. They weren't always the winners, mm-hmm. you know. Well, I and, think a lot. And of how these... do we give voice to maybe the perspective of history that we're not hearing, right? Yeah. Well, I think most of these movies make me very happy for the life I have. Yeah. Because they illuminate the struggles that humanity has gone through. Right. And they really make you realize how good your life is for one even and not to say that you know there aren't people who are struggling right now yeah oh yeah because there are but sometimes you can see someone and in an hour and a half see a lifetime's worth of pain and suffering and the ability to overcome it and you get that you either get that hope or you get that sense of oh, I can do this, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You get a sense of, okay, if they had to go through that, I can go through this. Yeah. And and it can, if some of the biopics will, if you if you have the bad mindset, or not a bad mindset, but, you know, it can make you spiral yourself. Yeah. Which is why you have to walk the line Ta-ha. carefully, you know? Because I, I do think that if you watch too much 
with a negative outlook on life. If you watch too many things with all is lost, despair, that is the pool you will sink in. Yeah. And so you have to balance that and understand, okay, I see the pool of despair. I will walk <coughs> and uh, and see it from afar. Yeah. Maybe even dip a toe in. Mm-hmm. But understand that that is not going to be my life. Yeah. And you can make that choice to walk away from the pool of despair and see the strength that other people had. Mm. And using the strength of other people and the inspiration of others, you can go forward with your life. Amen. <laughs> That's good. I, I'm at a My loss voice for words. is I don't even slowly know what to disappearing. Say. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can all try to walk hard. Like Dewey Cox. Oh my God. <laughs> One of my many guilty pleasure movies. But it is it is a biopic. It's satirizing it. Um it's a satire. satire. I like a satire. My favorite movie is a satire too, but yeah. Yeah. See, we we need a good satire in there, you know, to yeah, yeah. kind of and history. I mean, my gosh, there's a lot of historical satires. Just out don't there make it become real history. As well, you know. Monty Python is not real. What? There's no killer bunny. There's a holy grail. Oh, there's a killer bunny. It doesn't have a lot of apex predators, so maybe the bunny is the apex predator. (laughs) Oh, man. Mm. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Great conversation. And just uh, appreciate you staying up. (laughs) And us just kind of talking about history. So why we love Mostly modern history. There's no biopics of like ancient people. I mean, that you can think of. Yeah, it's true. We didn't really talk a lot about, I mean, we spent a lot of time in contemporary history, yeah. right? Over the last couple hundred years. And maybe that's just because that's a lot of the stories out there, right? Yeah. So maybe why we love some history, contemporary, <laughs> modern history. That's how we should. Yeah. I don't know. More recent, like <laughs> 1700s. I think the farthest back we went was French Revolution. Yeah. I don't think we went any further back. Yeah. Well, the narrative of history. We could have talked about about one of those ancient Greek epics. Gladiator. Yeah, that's a thing. That's a thing. See, that's the thing is I haven't seen all those in so long. There's there guys, there's so many stories out there. Listen, as someone whose like full-time job is to like be in all things narrative, pun intended. I still don't have time for all the things, right? That this is why we don't get watch recommended TV. Or, no, we ain't got no. time for it. If, if you guys haven't noticed on these episodes, we don't really ever talk about television. Because we don't have time. We we don't have time, y'all. Like, Choose Listen, I know there's a lot of great television out there. I just don't got time. I, I appreciate you guys recommending TV shows. I just politely- One TV show, if it's a couple seasons, is like 20 plus hours of your life. Oh, yeah. Whereas like a movie, okay, Lord of the Rings is long. It's long, I get it. But still, it's less than 20 hours. Yeah. Unless you do the extended cut version, which we've never done. But that would be a I'm much. still waiting on my faithful uh, adaptation of the Bible in a rated R Game of Thrones-esque TV show. That is a show I will watch religiously. 
pun intended. Oh my god! All right, I'm 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 in pun land now, so I think it's time to wrap this up. Your dad jokes are getting too hard. Oh, the dad jokes are coming, and the dinosaur jokes are going to follow. So oh, we should gosh. probably wrap this episode up. So thank you so much for listening you and checking terror. out this episode of all things narrative, and for uh, being with us for the Why We Love genre series. We will continue next month with another genre uh actually we're doing something a little different next month but i don't want to spoil it yet oh you're not gonna so, invite me um not next oh gosh <laughs> she sounds terrible when i try to say it now no i'm bringing you back at the end of the year for slice of life because i think slice of life doesn't that sound nice nice yeah. slice of life stories i could do that yeah so but that's that's coming down the line so we'll definitely get there and we got lots more great episodes coming. Don't forget to check out allthingsnarrative.com. And listen, if you are listening to this and you are on social media, if you have an Instagram or a Facebook and you have not connected with us, not followed us, please do so um, because we use social media, obviously, to um, not just promote episodes, but to share stories about what's going on as well. Uh, within our company of all things narrative and highlighting uh, the stories of those we work with as well. And, you know, if, if you just love stories, just follow us because, you know, it's, we got some. We got some. <laughs> Everyone's got some. And that's the whole point of why we exist because you got a story and you got a story. We all got stories. So let's tell them in meaningful ways. Let's create that space because when we tell our stories, it inspires us to live them more meaningfully right and tell the stories of history the other day and we're done thank you so much you don't want to hear that practitioner Derek Hatch signing off (laughs) saying thank you so much and until next time peace out